Welcome to the Growth Cap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I am your host, RJ Lumba. In this episode, we chat with Rami Karjian, co-founder and CEO of Medically Home, which is an innovative tech-enabled clinical enterprise that is transforming the way hospital care is given globally. Rami began his career with McKinsey & Company, where he worked for over 13 years across multiple offices and rose to partner. Subsequently, he was the president of Flextronics, the largest global technology provider of post-manufacturing supply chain logistics and repair services. Rami then went on to found Medically Home in 2016. To date, the company has raised over $60 million from strategic healthcare partners. It continues to succeed in bringing the virtual hospital to the homes of high and medium acuity patients with common medical diagnoses. We hope you enjoy the show. Rami, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, delighted to chat with you today. Typically, I have people kick off with a background, but I'd, I'd like to hold off on that. I have a question. I looked at your background, noticed that you spent over a decade at McKinsey. From the folks that I know, there's quite a few who have previously worked at McKinsey. They're doing very well today, it's very successful in their new career path. I can't help but wonder, is that causation or correlation? Meaning, is there something that you learn at McKinsey in and it helps you as you embark on your next career path, whether that be operationally or in some other realm, or are you just all smart people and you're going to be successful anyway? We'd love to hear your response to that. What a terrific question. That could be a whole podcast. Look, I was at McKinsey for 13 years in seven different offices, more than half that time in Asia. And it was, to your point, an amazing learning experience. Probably more than anything, it really taught me creative problem solving. And we can talk about how, when it came to co-founding a startup, how important creative problem solving is as a skill. And that was a gift that for sure McKinsey gave to me. And I think for those who leave McKinsey to pursue entrepreneurial, it's really perfect. I actually left McKinsey and around 15000 person global logistics company. And the other thing McKinsey, I think, really helped prepare me for with thinking at scale. So what's really fun is in a startup environment that I'm in now, the creative problem solving to solve all of the issues that you need to, to get a startup off the ground, but the training of how to think about all of that so that it gets to scale. The one thing McKinsey doesn't teach you is it doesn't teach you really how to manage people because it's such a group of overachievers who are highly motivated. When you get to a workforce of 15,000 people, you don't have that luxury. McKinsey's not the perfect learning platform, but it was great for what I'm doing now. Well, I, I noticed uh, looking at your website that you have a very happy group of people working at the company. Virtually everyone's photograph, they look extremely and authentically happy. Is that the case or do, did you just select great photographs? Well, by the way, I so appreciate picking up on authentic because it is one of the words that we use and sort of see as very important in our culture. I will say we are on a mission to transform the way hospital care is being delivered globally. And everybody at the company is very attracted and aligned with that mission. We share stories with the team every week about the difference that we're making to patients' lives. I pull, and I think the rest of the team pulls, an enormous sense of satisfaction from seeing the direct connection to thousands of lives getting changed because of the model that we're driving. 
Now, switching over into medically home, I'm fascinated by this, as I'm sure many people are. I have my mother now, as well as my in-laws, are at the age where they are needing more care or will soon need more oversight in a more frequent pattern. To the extent that in-laws that, to some degree, have started to transform their home to accommodate certain things. And I was curious, this is going to be a massive tech-enabled service that you provide, maybe for nationally than globally. But how does it actually work? I guess we'll dive right into how you interact with the consumer. You may do this via a partnership with a hospital, but what does it look like from the patient's perspective? You know, I think one of the trends that we're seeing that COVID has certainly accelerated is the importance of home in general. Amazon led this sort of idea of having things come to the home instead of people going places could be more effective and less costly. And that's what this model of sort of the virtual hospital is, the hospital coming to the patient's home instead of the patient going to the hospital. Our hospital partners are the ones that deliver the care. We provide, to your point earlier, a technology-enabled platform, but I'll sort of talk about it as sort of the care that gets provided. It comes to the patient, and instead of spending four or five days in a hospital, a traditional hospital bed, they spend about 30 days in the hospital that's in their home, getting more care over a longer period of time than they otherwise would have in a hospital. And that's why we see all the clinical outcomes are far superior, including, by the way, a lower mortality rate per some of the clinical trials that have been done from people like Hopkins. And the reason for that is if you're getting more care and you're getting it over a longer period of time, it's going to drive better outcomes. And the funding for that comes from arbitraging the fixed cost of a hospital, which can be $1,500 a day just to provide the infrastructure in that hospital. That's what gets arbitraged to provide more care over a longer period of time for the patients. And it comes to their home on their terms, but it's efficient because it uses, for example, an iPad for the patient and their physician to communicate and to see each other and to work together. So we figured out how to use technology to address some of the inefficiencies that you had from sort of a doctor driving to somebody's home model of 100 years ago. Is there a certain threshold if a patient's ailments are on the spectrum of acute and needing more intensive oversight, then they're probably going to have to go to the hospital? Is there a cutoff point in terms of how serious one's illnesses or ailments are. I'm smiling because we designed this model to be for high acuity care. And a little bit tongue in cheek, we sort of tell people, if you don't need to go to the hospital, this program isn't for you. So it starts with patients who would have gone to the ED and the ED can come to their home. And the clinical outcomes there are we see a dramatic reduction, about 50% of patients who would need to go to the hospital after the ED, this actually being able to take care of all of their needs in that sort of ED visit because they're getting that ED earlier. And again, it's a, a longer ED visit than they normally would have gotten in the hospital with more clinicians. But we have customers that are using this as a step down from ICU. Instead of going to what's called a traditional med surge bed, they're going to the hospital bed in their home. The range is you need a hospital, but you're not so sick that you would be in the ICU. That's the range that this program is designed for. And really the high acuity patients that are the ones that you know normally go to hospital three, four, five times a year, the frail elders that are the frequent users of our hospitals. 
How pervasive is your service now? Can any patient in the U.S. opt for this type of service? I imagine, especially these days with the pandemic and all, no one wants to go to a hospital. You're just exposed to more potential viruses. I know it's still you know, relatively early on in the company life cycle. So how available is Medically Home? Not as available as we'd like it to be, but there have been a number of catalysts this year, including the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, really reimbursing hospitals for this level of care has created a a dramatic increase in the number of hospitals that want to provide this to their patients. We've been at this for 11 years. We did our clinical trial 11 years ago, and the last 18 months, it's been massive. You know, we partner to provide this with hospitals like the Mayo Clinic, like Adventist Health on the West Coast. So now, you know, patients in Oregon, in California, in Ohio, in Florida, in Wisconsin, in Massachusetts can get that care working with our partner healthcare systems. And this year, we expect to go live in North Carolina, Texas, Washington State, Colorado, and a few other states on top of that. So it's expanding. And our goal is to take this model of care uh, globally because of the terrific clinical outcomes that it delivers. So is it such the case where if a hospital has capacity for 250 beds by partnering with medically home, they can expand to 500 or, or 750? Is that how they look at it? Yeah, so they look at it as additional beds. And what's great about these beds is they're way lower cost than their traditional beds. So a traditional hospital bed is about a million dollars a year in cost. These virtual beds are way cheaper. They deliver better clinical outcomes. They can flex up and down as you need them. So during flu season or a time like COVID, you can flex them up. And they also can move in geography. So Mayo Clinic is a great example. They're one of our customers. They use a command center in Jacksonville, Florida to treat patients in Florida, but also in Wisconsin. And they're now taking that to other states. So you can kind of move the beds around as you need them. The rule of thumb is about 20 to 30% of the beds in your brick and mortar hospital would qualify for safe, high acuity care in the home. So to your point, a traditional hospital that's 400 beds, this basically would allow them to add another 80 beds of capacity as needed. By beds, is that just the physical bed or is that surrounding equipment? What actually moves into the person's home? We can move a physical bed into their home. I think we've had very, very few patients need one. They're more comfortable and safer in their own beds. The most important thing that we actually put in the patient's home is all of the hardware that allows them to communicate with the clinicians as if the clinicians were right there with them. We give them an iPad that they can video conference with their clinical team, a special phone, they can pick it up. They wear a redundant armband in case they need help, they push it. And then all of the sensors that transmit the vital signs to the clinicians in the same way that you would have your your blood pressure, your respiratory rate, your pulse oximetry taken in the hospital. It's taken in the home with friendly devices in the home that transmit that data to the clinical team. And we even have a way of doing continuous monitoring with a patch so that you're constantly sending the signals of your vitals to the clinical team who are able to then change their interventions and treatment based on what they're seeing. So that's part of everything that's required. But when we think about the model is you need the technology in the home. You need all the services that the patient would normally get in the hospital to come to the home. We sort of refer to that as the supply chain, the things like x-rays and infusions and EKGs, all of those services we configure to go to the home. You need the command center of clinicians 24-7, doctors and nurses to care for you. And then you need a software system that integrates it all together and scales it up, which we also provide. So those are the elements of the model. We provide that to our customers. They staff the command center with their clinicians to provide care to their patients. 
Got it. In terms of like the human to human interaction, like a nurse going to the home, does that depends on the patient? It could be less frequent or more frequent? Yeah, and it depends on their acuity. But the base level is you're going to get at least four visits virtually with your nurse every single day. And in addition to that, if you need infusions or you need other nursing support, or we use a lot of paramedics, they'll also go to the home. So in that sense, you're getting more visits, more touches, more care than you would in a normal hospital over a longer period of time. And if you're high acuity, really sick, that really changes the curve of the admissions that you have. So I'll give you an example. One of our first patients, we have permission to talk about him, Chuck. He had been in hospital six times in the prior 18 months before coming onto our program. He was 92 years old, legally blind, very hard of hearing, and he's that high expensive patient for the health system. He spent 42 days in our model, got great care, got treated for prostatitis, which is what he came in on, and then developed pneumonia the first couple of days, and we treated his pneumonia as well. After 42 days, we discharged him, and he lived literally the rest of his life, another four years until 96, without needing any hospital care at all. From six hospitalizations in the prior 18 months to zero after 42 days of more care over a longer period of time. And the discharge means that all your equipment goes away, your services goes away, and, and he was able to live healthy from that point on. Yeah. And we really work with the patient's PCPs and their network in the community to make sure they have all the services that they need to stay healthy in their homes. And so you had mentioned, we had talked about a cost a little bit, but I imagine that this is probably one of the more cost-effective solutions there is. I don't know if you can share like order of magnitude wise, how much more cost-effective than traditional hospital care? Yeah, so it's typically about 20 to 25% more cost-effective than traditional care. To put that in context, if you take a a average pneumonia. So a pneumonia and the care that immediately follows the pneumonia costs the insurance company, whether that's the government or Blue Cross, about fifteen dollars to $20,000. So this model of care is able to do what would otherwise have cost $20,000 for $15,000, as an example. Saving that $5,000 even after you pump in more care for longer for that patient. And it's a real win-win because the hospital systems get more revenue and more margin than they're used to getting. And the payers, whether that's the government or private payers, are paying less. It's dramatic because if you're a hospital system and you're negotiating with your payer, normally you're talking about, okay, prices are going to increase 2 or 3% a year. There are no interventions that could take a $20,000 cost and talk about making it 20% less expensive. It's very, very dramatic. It's transformational. And it's one of the reasons we're seeing so much uptake now that the government has sort of cleared the path and said, you know, hey, we'll pay for this care in the home. We hear a lot about rural areas and how it's less capacity at the hospitals or, or maybe even there's there's no hospitals in proximity to some rural areas. Has Medically Home been able to get to these areas? Is connectivity an issue at all? Connectivity is an issue, and there's a number of other issues, but we strongly believe the patient population with Mayo that we're working with in Wisconsin, for example, is pretty rural. The access to hospital-level care for health outcomes for the country are so important, and we, we are deeply committed to solving the rural issues. So we've got a number of partners that we're looking at how to overcome some of the connectivity challenges, including using low-cost satellite. We actually use redundant cellular signals, so we don't have to rely on patients having broadband, which has very 
very low penetration in certain rural areas. And we actually use what's called the FirstNet, which is a special network available for first responders and health systems that also extends our reach and is more powerful than a typical cell phone in somebody's house. So we're coming up with technology solutions to reach that rural population and to make sure primarily through paramedics that those 18 services that they would otherwise get in an urban environment or if they were in a hospital are also available in rural areas. And in fact, one of our customers had asked us to help think about how to provide this level of care to American Indian tribal nations around the country. And those are, again, some pretty rural areas. But we think that access to hospital-level care that this provides, whether that's ED or inpatient, is super important. Mm -hmm. This is a big market that you are addressing. Are there folks out there, other companies doing something similar to Medically Home? There are. We celebrate that. This is a model that needs to get out. We have a unique place, frankly, with our focus on really sick patients, high acuity patients. That's where we think the biggest benefits are and where the scale and the numbers are. So that's the position in the market that we take. But there are other folks that focus on lower acuity, less sick patients and that are doing urgent care in the home um, or other hospital at home models that can't do some of the oncology patients, the cancer patients that we can do. But this is a powerful model and we'd like to see it spread both nationally and globally as much as possible. And I've noticed you you recently raised another round. It looks like, from what I was able to tell, it looks like you primarily have strategic partners. Is that the case with the latest round as well? It is. And we're incredibly blessed to have found, and a lot of customers are investors and shareholders, and some of our big partners who enable this ecosystem to be formed as investors. And we really like having that strategic capital because we're so aligned on the mission. And frankly, they've been incredibly helpful in helping us build out the business. Mm -hmm. Is this a business that is capital intensive or is it just the case where you want to ramp faster than you otherwise would with a lesser round? Yeah, the good news is it's a technology and software enabled business that is not very capital intensive. It is very R&D intensive. So we're developing new protocols for oncology. We're developing other clinical protocols that have us do quite some R&D. But the primary purpose of most of the capital we're raising, to your point, is to expand faster. And especially now with CMS sort of saying, we want this care to happen and we're reimbursing for it. You know, there's an enormous demand for health systems out there to get this model. And that's where a lot of our capital is going. Uh, and, you know, we have aspirations to take this model internationally as well. That'll involve you know, additional capital to expand rapidly overseas. Now, switching back, you had mentioned earlier in our conversation of how potentially, and this relates to folks in our audience who may be you know, either on the finance or consulting side and has, have grown up in firms of that nature, you mentioned how maybe it's a little bit more difficult to pick up on the people aspect and management. How have you been able to kind of adjust and become good at managing, motivating, and working with people on a day-to-day -day basis? It's a constant journey, and we spend a lot of time thinking about the culture that we want to have. The journey that I took is I felt like coming out of consulting, I made a lot of mistakes, and I tried to make sure that I learned from those mistakes. And we've got a great team that supports that learning. But a lot of it is just practice and learning and making mistakes and figuring something out. And I think the most important part of the culture and motivating people and making sure people are passionate about what they do and they enjoy it is just to have the desire to be attuned to that, to spend time on that. To focus on that because it's easy to focus on the problems, especially an ex-consultant. You come in and you're a great problem solver. It's easy to focus on the problems, making sure to spend just as much or in some cases more time focused on all the people aspects and being willing to learn from the mistakes and having a forgiving team. I think that's all part of the recipe that's helped me, but it's definitely a journey and it's definitely ongoing. 
couple more questions. We're coming up on time here. These are some of the questions I'd really like to ask because I think our audience really likes to hear about it. Can you share with us a challenging time you faced during your career? It could be at, at any point, whether early on or you know mid-career or more recently, a challenging time and how you were able to overcome that challenging time. Sure. So I told you the story of Chuck, our very first patient. Getting to Chuck was incredibly tough. My co-founders and I had self-financed the company. There were 187 problems that we needed to overcome in order to launch this high-acuity model of hospital in the home. We had one customer that took a chance on a model that hadn't really been commercially proven, believed in us, and gave us that opportunity to do that. And the enormous amount of effort and just persistence that we had to put in to get to where we could treat that first patient and prove the model was incredibly tough. But we were a small team. We had each other. We supported each other. We worked really, really closely well together, you know, incredibly long hours to get there. And it was exhilarating and incredibly challenging and stressful all at the same time. I understand the how it was a priority given he was helping you prove the model. Does everyone else get that kind of attention? Look, we try to focus on great partnerships with our customers. It's part of our culture. But I'll tell you, you could imagine at that time, the company was tiny. Everybody had multiple jobs. I was also the tech guy that went into the home with the nurse to install the equipment. And so I remember riding in the car, the nurses sitting in the car, we're driving to the patient to Chuck's home. And so I said, hey, tell me a little bit about Chuck because she'd done all the screenings of Chuck to make sure he'd be appropriate. And she's like, well, he's blind, extremely hard of hearing, 92 years old. And here I am sort of getting ready to set up the iPad and the telephone and all this equipment that, you know, really wasn't designed for somebody who was, you know, blind and extremely hard of hearing. It was a big test for us. And Chuck defined us. How sick he was, how much a difference we made in his life really defined the notion of we are the high acuity guys. Mm-hmm. So last question, is there someone that you, during your career or currently, that you witnessed working and leading other people where you thought, that's the kind of leader or person I want to be professionally or maybe even personally? So someone you really admire. Rather than an individual person, one of the things that's had such a big impact on me, which I try to replicate, is I can pick specific moments in my career where somebody said, you know what, you haven't proven to me that you can do this, but I believe you can, and I'm going to be here to help you do that, and I'm willing to give you that chance, that break. And I can think about some incredible moments like that, in particular McKinsey. I know that happened to me at McKinsey. I did 19 interviews to get the job at McKinsey, and I was convinced that I was the missing hire guy, that I would be there for a year and then would get kicked out. But I know that one of the partners said, you know what, I think this guy can do it and I'm willing to help him through it. And so let's bring him into the firm. And I can just trace three or four pivotal moments, whether it's with our very first customer or people who have mentored me when they sort of said, look, you know, this isn't proven, but I'm willing to take the chance and really commit to trying to make this work. That made all the difference in my career. And that that is so inspiring to me. And the number one thing I, I try to do when I think about building talent in our team. That's great. Yeah, I think truly when you're trusted by someone, you rise to the challenge. Was that after uh, UVA or Northwestern? 
Well, you know, that was after UVA business school, but the same thing happened while I was at Northwestern. I took a year off and I joined Procter & Gamble. And one of the senior managers in Procter & Gamble, I had a passion for the Middle East. I'm from the Middle East. I wanted to join their Middle Eastern division. And I was a kid who hadn't even finished college, but who had a lot of interest in computers and willing to work hard. And one of the managers of Procter & Gamble took a chance on me and said, look, you're not proven. You don't have a lot of work experience. You don't know anything about our industry, but come on to Procter & Gamble and I'll, I'll work and I'll mentor you and, and we'll make this work. And that changed everything. And then the same thing at McKinsey, it changed everything about my trajectory. I'm glad I could sneak in a, a word for UVA in there. I'm a fellow Wahoo. On that note, Rami, thank you so much for your time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Well, thank you. I so appreciate it. Wonderful questions.